0: This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha's Kiseitze, here at the Database with Rabbi Yosha Eisenberg. And Parsha's Kiseitze is not only a packed Parsha, but it is a Parsha that is quite known for its many mitzvot, not just its many mitzvot, but the most mitzvot of any individual Parsha in the entire Torah. Parsha's Kiseitze contains 74 mitzvot, the remez to remember is ayin dalad, aid, it is a testimony, and... With Parshios, like Parshis say, we have several challenges, some of which we've seen that kind before, and another challenge that we have is one that's a little bit unique to what we've been confronting in most of Devarim, though even so we've seen similar circumstances, similar constructs, similar layouts in other Parshios, but none quite as robust as Parshas say So what am I talking about? So with Parshas say we have what seems to be what we've referred to in the past as a miscellaneous mitzvah, Mishka right? If you think of any quote-unquote random mitzvah topic and try to locate its Parsha, so if you don't know better, a great guess would be Parsha's Kiseitse. Maybe another great guest would be Parsha's Mishpatim, Parsha's Kedoshim. And we've done our best in those Partios way back when, Sefer Vayikra, Sefer Shmos, to try to figure out why certain mitzvos fell into those Parshaos, what subcategories could be broken down to identify and to structure the parshios and uh, the the topics, the mitzvah topics within each parsha, and parshas Kiseitse, say we have we have we have similar work to do. We can't just assume that oh yeah, this is just one of those random parshios that has a lot of mitzvahs in it. When it came to parshas parasha, mishpatim, when it came to parshas Kidoshim, similar things we saw in parshas ra'e. Um, but we we did we, we did our best. You can go back to listen to those old parsha panoramas and try to see the hidden structure. And there was structure in those parshios We were able to identify uh, some kind of overarching themes. And now we have to do the same here, at parshas Ki with so many mitzvos. But then we go back to that other uh, challenge, and that is that as we're looking for the broader panoramic view here with all of the mitzvah topics that appear in Parsha's Kisaitse, we have that even broader, even more panoramic view when we look at the entirety of Sefer Devarim. Because with Parsha's like Kiseitze, with which contains so many mitzvos, it's very easy to forget that Parsha's Kisaitse is just part of Moshe Rabbeinu's really long speech, which we keep on talking about every week of Sefer Dvarim. Right, Parshas Shoftim we had to remind ourselves as well last week, and we were able to identify um, a theme there. We spoke about the theme of leadership figures, leaders of society, and individuals who are anti-society, the rebels, the outcasts of, of, of Jewish society, and... That was apparently something that was very important once Musharbeinu has identified that he's leaving in the earlier half of Sefer Dvarim. And then Musharbeinu tells the Bnei Srel, Re'e, set your eyes on the future of what's going to be. And then we said that it was in Parshas Re'e that um, in telling us to look towards that future, he laid out the, the framework for an apparent covenant that's going to take place at Harival and Hargrizin you might remember. And one of the questions we asked is that that covenant's not going to be addressed until Parsha's Kisavo, which is next week's Parsha. So what we suggested is that everything up until Parsha's Kisavo is part of this larger rubric Part of, um, you know, uh, school starting now for, you know, in many places. So part of the syllabus for the covenant, right? The grand test, when uh, the grand curriculum when they go into Eretz Yisrael. So what are the things they need to know? So among them, we spoke about in Parsis A the um, abolition and destruction of all of odizara and Parsha Shoftim, we spoke about establishing, instituting the leadership figures, but of course that was not all because we spoke about war. There, there are wars that are bound to happen when they get into Eretz Yisrael. Right, we had the Koim Meshuch Machama, who was um, the leadership figure who leads that effort, and then and we kind of looked at um, uh, an even broader theme that that sort of puts together the 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 leadership theme. In Shoftim, we spoke about the Melech, the judges, the officers, etc. And then the war theme, which and we, we tried to suggest that through our um, clear, pristine uh, ethics in war, we sort of light the way for the rest of the world, being the Or B'goyim, Um And in, in that way, we are really leaders of, of all societies. Anyway... That takes us a little bit into Parsha's Kiseitse, where apparently we're continuing to establish that rubric. So once we know that, we can try to figure out a little bit what Parsha's Kiseitse is about, despite the fact that we have this, again, this vast uh, Parsha of many seemingly different topics, but maybe that can be the framework, at least, or the groundwork for establishing a framework of what Parsha's Kiseitse is discussing. But we can't also forget that we left off with a question, and this is a little bit um, going to help us with the framework that we're trying to establish now. The question we left off with is that the first time we found the words, "Kisete la is not in this week's Parsha, but it was in last week's Parsha, Parsha Shoftim, the beginning of the war series. And we argued that the war series seemingly continues... And uh, spills over into Parshas kiseitse, where we find those words again. La But you wouldn't need to say those words again if um, we're just continuing the series. right? So why was there an apparent interruption? We spoke about the Agla Arufa, which for the intents and purposes of Parsha Panorama, that was the interrupting cow. Right? We had a service about what happens when you find a dead body, not necessarily in the time of war, presumably not in the time of war. So that apparently interrupted the war series. And we suggested various hashkafic answers to that question, um, how, of, uh, how, for example, we take life um, to be sacred no matter what happens, even if we have to end life, even, you know, the place of war. Now that can tell us a little bit about the Hashkafa of war, but what it does not tell us is why we had two separate sections to talk about war. And yet here in Parshis Kiseitse, we start off with that with that same opening. Kiseitse La Machama we haven't fully answered the question yet. What aspect of war is being discussed here and why is it being discussed separately? That's one question that we'll have to address. And with that, maybe we'll address that question shortly, and with that we can sort of segue into the many topics. Or I can let you sit on the question, maybe, and I'll start telling you what those topics are, and then we'll come back to the question, because maybe in that kind of way we'll sort of be able to appreciate the different themes that are in the Parsha. And maybe what I could also do is I can start naming you all the different mitzvah topics, and then halfway, we'll, we'll be able to come back and answer the question. So maybe, maybe we'll do that. So we have a lot of different topics to look at. And as always, I did my best to sort of categorize them in the best possible way. And believe it or not, within the 74 mitzvot, I was able to identify maybe, we, well, we have nine subsections. And... You may say, "Hey, that's that's many, that's that's many sections to the parsha." But considering that it's seventy-four mitzvahs, and I was able to condense it into nine sections, nine identifiable themes, um, we should uh, be able to be happy with that. So, um, so we we'll, so that's so we have so we have the general question of identifying structure within the mitzvahs, and we have the larger theme of say What, in fact, is Parshas Kisetsa a parsha about? Because you can't just say it's oh, this is the miscellaneous parsha. That, that that's not an answer. And maybe before we go into all of the different mitzvah topics that we have, I'm going to jump from the beginning, all the way to the end of the parsha. Because Mechamal because we know that talks about the laws of the Esher fast Torah, the beautiful captive of war, the Gentile woman, whom under very strange circumstances the Torah allows us, or, or allows a soldier to marry this woman if his Yitzhah uh, so inclines him or of his evil inclination, so if he's so inclined by his evil inclination, then he may do that. In most of the minutes, we spoke about how the Torah could allow posi- uh, is such a, a thing, and um, we and even there, we were able to also identify a theme in Parshas Kisei Tse, not necessarily the theme we're going to focus on today, but there's another seemingly, um, or there's another war topic, or seemingly a war topic, that... Appears at the very end of Parshas Ki and if you look at most of Ki most of Ki does not seem to be talking about war. The end of Parshas Ki is actually has a special name, Parsha Zachar. Parsha Zachar, the Parsha of um, or um, Zachor means to, to to remember. Parsha Zachor, which um, we we lain just before Purim, and it's the story of Amalek. Malak, Zehira Samalik, Mechias Samalik, the Melchem Samalik, the war against the and we know that we're supposed to obliterate the, any, every last vestige of a malek, and the, the you know this chiv, uh, to wipe out a malek seems to resemble the similar Isser of wiping out the seven Canaanite nations, right, which we spoke about in last week's parsha, parsha Shoftim, So if that's true, why were they separated? Right, it's a little bit choppy now because we had a war series beginning in last week's Parsha. We interrupted it with Egla Arufa. We come back to the war topic in here in, uh, with Asha Sifas Toar. And then at the very end of Parsha's Kiseetse, we have Michiah which at first glance does not belong at the end of Kiseetse after a bunch of mitzvahs that seemingly have nothing to do with war. This should be back in the war topic. So we have to address that. Why, in fact, does the Torah um, have, you know, this giant gap? What's happening in between? What's happening at the beginning and the end of our Parsha? So we spoke about the beginning. We spoke about pre-our Parsha, and we spoke about the end. Now let's fill in the big gap in the middle, and then we'll come back to our questions. So once again, for the first section, it begins with the fast Toar. But if you notice, Rashi points out based on a midrash, I believe it's a midrash tanchuma, um, but Rashi even here gives us a structure to some of these mitzvahs, and what he seems to paint a picture of based on the midrash is a dysfunctional family. So the first section of Parashat Kiseiseh I have is the dysfunctional family. It starts with the Afas Torah, this beautiful woman that you find among the captives of war. And this leads into the rules of Pishnaim. What happens when you have two wives, one that you love and one that you don't love as much, right? The, the beloved wife and the hated wife, the Ahuva and the Snua. So the rule of Pishnaim tells us that the firstborn, no matter which wife um, um, he emerges from, he gets the double portion. And then that goes into Ben-Sorero the the wayward and rebellious son who has to be stoned in court because he has acted with behavior that's demonstrative of a hopeless future and so before he gets any worse they kill him very extreme um, mitzvah topic and um, so extreme that perhaps um, this never even happened according to one opinion of Chazal or at least um, a very famous opinion now the Chumash in the very next section um, the Midrash says that this might also even be related but it starts with the Chiv of Tliya which is hanging um, the, the dead body, af, you know, hanging a dead body after he was stoned in court. And the Torah is careful to tell us that we cannot leave the, the dead body hanging all night long. You know, you hang it so everyone could see, and then we take the body down. Now, this section, this second section, um, after the dysfunctional family, I've titled um, Respect of Creation, because it starts with Taliyah. We have respect for the dead body, even though we had to kill him. Um, and then the Chumash segues from there into Hashava Saveda, returning a lost object. to Ina, reloading an animal that's, that's uh, that, that your, your friend's animal or maybe it's your enemy's animal, um, but his, the animal had, had luggage on it and it fell off, helping him reload. Then we have Beged Ish, Beged Isha, or not in that order though, Beged Isha comes first, then Beged Ish. that basically um, men and women cannot wear each other's clothes. And then we have Shiluah Chakein, um, or also known as Shiloh HaKan the, um the sending away of the mother bird so that you can um, secure the eggs or the chicks for yourself. Now, I refer to this entire section as respect of creation, um, that there's their basic ethics, um, basic, um, uh, we can call it, um, uh, spiritual m- m- morality that the Torah demands that we have, and it's manifest in all of these mitzvahs, which you might look at them and say, what do they have to do with each other? But the fact that we don't disgrace a dead body, the fact that, you know, we return a lost object, that we reload the animal, and that we don't blur lines between men and women by, by exchanging clothing, and the fact that we, when it comes to Shiloh HaKain, right, so it's not so much about our mercy on the mother bird. Um, it's about ingraining mercy, and there are other interpretations that would explain that the um, you know besides for the Ramban who talks about the focus on ingraining the midas harachamim and fighting the midas achzarias, the Mida of brazenness, but shiluach hakain is also about respect of the the parent-child relationship, right? When when uh, when when genders blur, um, blur lines, for example, with begedish begedisha, and other um, such extreme manifestations of these isurim. So we, we blur the lines of the parent-child model, um, what some refer to for some reason as the nuclear family, which I never understood that. Um, but it's, a, it's not a respect to Hashem's creation. So when an animal's wandering around and that animal belongs to someone, proper respect for, for the order of things is that people, uh, people, you know, people happen to have property return their property. Um, and, and so I refer to this section, once again, as respect of creation. Now, the next section I refer to as um, when building a home. And section 3 talks about what happens when you build a home. When you build a house, you have the mitzvah of ma'akeh. Or you have to put a, um, when you have a roof, you have to put a fence around it. But it doesn't just talk about building a house, but it talks about planting a vineyard, things that you do when you build a home. So Reval Yehul talks about the need for the atmosphere of simcha. Ya'in yisamach levav the Pesach in tells us that wine gladdens the heart. And you, so whenever you make a house, house, a bias has to go in tandem with a vineyard. And when talking about the vineyard, the Chumash tells us about forbidden mixtures: Akilei Akarim, a Behema, That you should not um, mix. Um, um, you should not mix breed with uh, with vineyards. You should not do that with animals either. Right. So when we're talking about, and you might say that this also connects back to the respect of creation. Right. So um, when so we we focus on that 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 respect of creation theme. But now when we move into building a home. So, and hopefully this is going to be a functional home. Not like the dysfunctional home that we spoke about before with the Afas Toar and the two, and the polygamy where where one wife you hate and you have a rebellious child. No, we are developing a a home that has the atmosphere of respect of creation. Now, when we build a home, we have a house. We make a fence around it to keep it safe. When you have a vineyard, we also keep that spiritually safe by not making forbidden mixtures. Here, the Chumash also talks about Shatness. And when talking about Shatness, Chumash tells us the exception, tzitzit. This is an exception to shatness. So these are all parts of building a home. And now that we're thinking about this, it's interesting, the Chumash is also going to tell us in the very next section, when you build a home, another thing you need is a family, you need a wife. So the very next section, which I have for myself, at least is section four, we have a lot of different rules governing wife. What happens with a wife? How are you supposed to treat your wife? What are the rules when you get married? So the Chumash starts telling us those rules in this very next section. And what you've already maybe started noticing is that even though until now, until this parsha, we've been talking about war, all of a sudden we're talking about family building and home building, homemaking. So, what exactly does that tell us about, you know, the, uh, about this parsha? Right, so far, there seems to be this this overarching theme of 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 homemaking. We're going to see it continue, and then we're going to see it um, sort of. Um, Extend outward; it's gonna, it's gonna expand to not just your home, but society at large. And what this apparently tells us, at least on some level, is maybe we're kind of veering away from war to talk about something closer to home, quite literally, your home, right? Eishes um, Yifas is telling us about a woman that you might marry when you're out on the, when you're out at war, um, but Eishes Tovar if you think about it, it says Vereisa Bashevio. You see her among the captives, meaning it sounds like the war is basically over. And HSC Fasto are sort of escorting us off of the battlefield and back into our homes. So that's something to think about. We're kind of like moving, you know, it's the falling action from the war, or so it seems, and we are kind of moving back into our homes. Okay, so you, build, so you build a home and you have a wife. What about a wife? Here the Chumash tells us about Moti Shemra. There's the slanderous shaming of your wife. Let's say, Chas you think that your wife was unfaithful during her period of betrothal, and, and so you slander her, Chas v'sham. Then the Chumash talks about what happens if she was actually unfaithful. Znus, if she committed adultery. And there we have the, the halachos of the Na'araham, or Rasa. Let's say she was seduced or raped, mefateh or Ones, or maanes. And there the and so the Chumash tells us about all those different kinds of things. Now, while we're focusing on the wife, the Chumash in the next section tells us about unions that are not okay. Forbidden unions. So for example, we have Ashes Av, the 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 wife of your father, otherwise referred to as Kanaf Av. We have Betsuadaka and Chrus Shafcha. These are referring to different kinds of people who have uh, crushed anatomy which um disallows um, them from entering the kahila. You can so um, let's say it's a man trying to come into the kahila to marry a woman, so that's not okay. And here we'll talk about moms there, someone else, um, a bastard child who's also not allowed to marry in. So a bunch of forbidden unions. While we're talking about the kind of home that you build, there are certain kinds of people that we do, that we keep out. And when talking about that, the Chumash talks about different kinds of nations that might want to marry in. And when it comes to Ammon and Moab, the men of Ammon and Moab cannot marry in. The Chumash tells us because of what happened with Bilam, for example, and yet, there are certain nations that the first couple of generations you can't, but afterwards you can. We have benevolence towards brother nations or neighboring nations or host nations. So for example, Edom is our brother. So eventually we have to be, we have to allow them to marry in if they want to, to you know, to, to join us. And the same thing with Mitzrayim, for having hosted us. So now we spoke about different kinds of unions. When you build a home, you and you start getting and you start building a family, what kind of unions are allowed, what kinds are not? Now now that we have that sort of atmosphere, in the next section, which in my in my notes at least is section six, we have what I refer to as campus purity and holiness. That there's a certain sensitivity. Right, going back to that atmosphere. What do you want when you when you when you build this home when you start building a family? So the chumash first talks about the need for ritual and physical cleanliness, like actual, like you know, like um, a tahara on the one hand, and also not having you know, for example, excrement within the within the within the holy machanos, right? That are the machanas shechina, the machanas levia. There are certain camps in the inner circles that, that that we can't have these things, and there's a special place where we 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 get rid of all of the excrement and we take that outside the camp, right? Uh, literally the outhouse, right? Um, the Chumash here also talks about something that seemingly doesn't belong here, talks about what happens if a slave was um, um, w- was freed or he escaped, you're not. You're actually not allowed to return to captivity. Um, and um, I think Chazal said that we're talking about a slave who's someone who's a slave to a, a non-Jew. He can't be returned, so we'll have to try to address what this is doing here. Um, and then the Chumashir talks about harlotry. So earlier, we spoke about forbidden unions. When we talk about harlotry, harlotry is not just a matter of who you're allowed to marry, who you're not allowed to marry. Harlotry is specifically not about marriage at all. It, in fact, harlotry is the anti-marriage. Harlotry is the atmosphere of people engaging in unions that are out of wedlock. right? So And some meaning that it's completely messing with the purity of what we're trying to do here. So there we talk about harlotry, and this we can understand why this is related to campus purity and holiness. And then the Chumash segues from there into the topic of esnan zona, a harlot's wage, which cannot be used even if you you know you exchange the money for something else. Um, so the, the, that, that money can't be used to buy um, something that's going to go on the Mizbeach. And the same thing for Mechir Kelev, a dog's exchange, something that you, you can't just say, oh, I'll trade this dog for the sheep and then offer the dog on the Mizbeach. Now, this is going to segue into another topic, but before we get to that next topic, let's talk about the turning over of a freed slave. What's that doing here? So we might argue that maybe campus purity and holiness it uh, has to take place on not just a, um, a level in terms of uh, marital relations and literal or ritual um, you know, holiness and purity, but it has to take place on a social level as well. And the Torah provides the slave a chance to integrate into society like a real human, because he is one. And so perpetual slavery and harlotry are both similarly dehumanizing and take away from that atmosphere of, of holiness and purity. Right, we're you know we're we're not talking about um, you know the an, um, a, t- a typical avakinani who is serving a Jewish family where he's already treated like a human, you know we're 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 talking at a very different kind of circumstance. Now, from this section, while we're talking about esnanzona mechirkel of these forbidden exchanges, these forbidden monetary exchanges, right? And it's not by the way when we talk about monetary here. You'll notice as we continue this section, we're not talking about something like stealing. Right, Stealing is, a, is, is a, something of monetary nature that you're not allowed to do. Everything here financially is equal, but the problem is the ethics, how you're acting with the money is in a way that in the higher ideals of the Torah, beyond choshe mishpat, beyond business, is spiritually, ethically incorrect. So, for example, we spoke about esnan zona mechir kelev, right? All the money, everything is equal, but this is, on, this is not considered appropriate. So in a similar vein, in the next section, which I have as forbidden slash unholy exchanges, so we have different kinds of exchanges that are inappropriate because they're sort of taking advantage of peers, even if, again, financially, on a business, social level, we can, we can defend it, we can justify it, but in, according to Torah ideals, we cannot. So, for example, we have neshech, or interest. We spoke about this, this came, this did come up in earlier Parsios, um, and I, 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 I believe it for sure came up in Parsios Mishpatim, because we spoke about loans there. When it comes to interest, it's a normal business tactic to have someone pay for the benefit of the time that they are continuing to hold on to someone else's money, but according to the higher Torah ideal, we don't do that to another Jew. And here, the Chumash also talks about Nadarin. Right? You have to repay on time whenever you owe something, whether it's to the Mikdash or to another peer. So... Um, you might say, like, oh, okay, so I'm not not being charged interest, so I can just uh, hold off as long as I want to. And then, yeah, I'll pay back the money. Everything will be equal. The answer is no. You have to pay back your nether on time. Here, the Chumash also talks about another kind of um, forbidden um, monetary-related exchange, which is when it comes to kerem or kamas right, a person um, coming in the field, um, either in the vineyard or or in the grains. So a person is allowed to... uh, um, to eat from the gleanings, a person, you know, that's something that fi- financially speaking is not considered usser. But what is a problem is when you start pocketing the food and then bringing it home. Right, selling it on retail, you know, or whatever you're going to do with it. It's kind of like, yeah, okay. It's, it's, you know, I'm not saying this is exactly equivalent. But you go to a kiddish and you start pocketing the food and bringing it back. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that that's the equivalent. But we can understand why one might be a little bit more um, what you might what you might think of as being a little bit more distasteful, um, where you know, you know, you go to, you know, you you go to where where someone is offering you food. Um, you know, or, or like, let's say, in a yeshiva setting, right? Where you take your meal, you take your breakfast, which you're entitled to, but then you bring it back to your dorm, and then you don't come back for seder, right? So uh, th- there were such rules against things like that. <laughs> um, but the point is, maybe you didn't financially steal, but what you did is, is considered inappropriate, almost um, spiritually and ethically. So we have kem- Kerem and keren- kamasriacha. So we have again, so so all these things, but they all have in common. We have. Um, you know, um, different. You know, different violations, taking financial advantage either of God or of people, um, and fine. Then, interestingly enough, the Chumash jumps over to the circumstance of and the, the, the mitzvah topic of divorce. And it doesn't only talk about divorce, but it talks about the mitzvah of Shana Rishona. Very ironic, right? Divorce, all the different rules for divorce, what happens, are you allowed to marry the woman again if you divorced her? Only if you didn't get remarried to someone, only if you didn't marry a second woman in the interim. Um, Only then, um, but otherwise, you... um, Or Sorry, only if she didn't get married in the interim. Um, But... The the point is that we have the rules of divorce and then Shana Rishona, where we say that this this is actually somewhat of a war topic, um, that when it comes to Shana Rishona, we can't make this woman go, uh, we can't make this husband go out to war. He has to stay home and make his wife happy. Maybe um, uh, um, the Chumash is telling us something very big about divorce, right? Um, Although the Gemara talks about different reasons why a man may say to his wife, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm ditching you and you got to leave this house. But well, we have Vesimah Hasishto, meanwhile That there's a chiyof, not that he rejoices with his wife But he gladdens his wife He has to make his wife happy You're wondering why divorce might happen Maybe it's because the man is having trouble with Vesimah Chasishto. Right, and you might say Well, why, uh, why, is, why are these topics put together? You can come up with a bunch of reasons Maybe you can give another uh, suggestion That just because a guy divorces his wife Just because a woman gets divorced Doesn't mean that they shouldn't both seek remarriage Right, they, they can re-experience Hashanah Rishonah with maybe someone else Right? There are a bunch of different suggestions you can give. Um, there, there, there are some um, exegetical suggestions in the Gemara that talks about the, the comparison between marriage and divorce and halachos that we learned from that. But a larger question that you might ask is, why is this section not in the section of uh, that we had earlier when it comes to building a home and starting family? So... You, you, you might um, you know you, you might suggest some uh, um, some different answers that you might say that earlier we were um, when we in, in section 4 for example where we sp- started speaking about having a wife maybe there it was referring to the sanctity of the home and what and you know one's interpersonal relationships and here the you know the Chumash does not want to put this next to the other one this is talking about how such a relationship might be severed um, but Again, so we have this topic all the way down here. So what happens in the possibility where a home has to be broken? Okay? And then the Chumash um, kind of segues into more society-related rules. In my final section, which I have is Section 9, I have um, the what I refer to as society-related injustice and brazen advantage of the weak. So earlier, um, so for example, we spoke about different kinds of financial... Um, um, financially related unholy exchanges, but now what we're referring to is advantage of the weak, and I think Shana Rishona is really the beginning of that. Right? And the, the Ibn Ezra actually says such a thing. Right, the uh, one thing you can't do is um, keep a man from from satisfying his wife in Shana Rishona. But you know what else you can't do when it comes to taking a pledge. There are limitations when you have a, a, a worker right and he and he's not able to pay you now, so you're holding on to his pledge. You can't take a millstone, why Because a millstone, apparently, in those times at least, maybe I guess um, the halakha might still be the same today, but a millstone is something that he needs for his um you know for food you know he he needs that to live, so there are pledges on what you can take. You can't take advantage of that guy just because he's poor, similarly kidnapping it's also to kidnap the next topic um that where you can't kidnap because. Um, Or Because it's an evil thing to do But why is it here? Because that's taking advantage of someone who's weaker than you The only person you can kidnap is someone who is is An underlink to you Someone who you you have the power, the capabilities of kidnapping So um, Here also the Chlomish talks about Guarding Tzara'as and remembering what happened to Miriam Why? Because Lashon Hara is the ultimate um, advantage of the weak Because Person who doesn't know that you're talking about them—it's such a powerful tool. People don't even realize. People think like, "Oh, a man beating up another, you know in school, a boy beating up another boy in school is like, oh, that's that's that that's huge. He's bullying him." Some of the worst bullying, you know, can be through slander, and even girls can commit that. Not saying that girls can beat each other up too, but we know that certain kinds of, of attacks are are more um, um, powerful and advantageous, and have the the, the potential for such damage. And there's no one weaker than the person who doesn't know that you're talking about them. So we have the topic of Lashon Hara. We also have the poor. You might take advantage of the poor, the Chumash tells us. right? So the poor debtor's security or the poor laborer's wage. The Chumash tells us if you have a poor debtor, all right, so make sure you return his security at a timely matter when he needs it. And if you have a poor laborer, make sure you pay him on time. Because if you don't, he's not going to be able to do anything about it. Here the Hamish also tells us that and vice versa. There's no such concept of, you know, here at least a vicarious punishment, at least when it comes to the human court and testimony, there, um, 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 are the different things that we learn here. That, for example, a child or a father can't um, cause the other one to die because of their testimony. That might also be some form of taking advantage of someone who is at a, mo- at a place of weakness because... Um, you know, when when it comes to I guess when it comes to family, the, the, there's that natural weakness. Beyond that, the Chumash talks about um, the convert, the orphan, and the widow, the ger, the and the almana, right? So you can't pervert their justice, you can't take their garment as a pledge. You have to leave over gleanings of the harvest for them. And then the Chumash talks about Malchus as well. What does this have to do with taking advantage of the weak? So the person who is a criminal and he's being tried in court and he's being flogged in court, so the Chumash tells us, don't overdo it. You cannot overdo it because you may think, oh, look, he's, he's, um, he's guilty, so he's, he's in a, this place, this vulnerable place there are, you know, he, he's now also considered the weak, and you cannot take advantage of him. Similarly, the Chomish said, we, um, you know, those who are experts in Gemara know that right next to Malchus we have Los Achsem Shor B'Disho um, the, the, the Lav de Chassima, the Isser of muzzling an ox when he's threshing for you also taking advantage of the weak he's muzzled, he can't do anything about it, you let the, let the animal eat, let the poor animal eat then we have Yibam and Chalitza right? There's another, who, This is a, who's weaker, besides for the person who you're speaking about doesn't know you're talking about, a Moshnara, but who's weaker than the person who's dead and childless, has no legacy being lived on for him, and needs someone to, to perpetuate his legacy. We have Yibum and Chalitza, the Leveret marriage, and Chalitza, what happens if, for whatever reason, they decide not to go through with it? We also have, what I refer to as the violently overprotective wife The Chumash talks about a very grotesque And graphic case where um, Two men are in a fight and then one woman decides The wife of one of the individuals decides to get involved And grab the man in his private parts um, a place where he's very vulnerable So that's apparently a, an, an advantage Of the weak that the Chumash Forbids And then the Chumash talks about false weights and measures How you are not, able, you're not allowed to even own them You can't own false weights and measures Why? This is an appropriate advantage of the weak Perhaps you could say, that um, you know, by, by owning such things um, and the, pot, the, the potentiality of using them and, and using them to your advantage to someone who's unsuspecting, so we have in this larger section that second to last, that penultimate isser or that penultimate mitzvah topic in our parsha. Because what's the last one? We spoke about it already, Amalek. And why do I assume that this section is all about taking advantage of the weak? Because that's exactly what Amalek did. All right to the nechashalim. That's how al yef Gea. You guys retired, and he took advantage of the week. That's exactly what we say in Parsha Zachar, taking advantage of the week. The hashkafa. If you think about it, taking advantage of the week is exactly what a malik is. You know the the hashkafa, the difference between the Gazlon and the ganov, of which you might be familiar with from the Gemara and Bavkam, I believe, where it talks about the Gazlon He's not afraid of anybody. You know, so he just goes in and he steals, and he'll take it right out of your hands. The Ganav he waits for everyone to stop looking And in the, in, you know, in the, you know, like a thief in the night, literally The Ghana will go in and he'll take it when no one's watching Because he's afraid of man, he's not afraid of God Right, you're afraid of the strong, but you're not afraid of the weak And that's uh, a that's like, you know, he'll take advantage of people when he's able to And when he's not, you know, so whatever So then he, he, he backs off Meanwhile, he's not afraid of God who's watching even when the, the human is at a moment of weakness. But that's what a Malik is. And a Malik perfectly tops off this entire section. So, now looking at a global view, coming back to some of our questions, we talked about what it takes to function society. HSC Tifa's Torah is taking us off of the battlefield, right? And now we learn about what kind of dysfunctional family you can have if you come off the battlefield the wrong way. But what you do want to do is you want to have a home that's founded on the concept of respect for creations, respect for God's creations, for God's ethics, the higher ethics of the world. And then the Chumash tells us about what happens when you build a home, you, build, you start planting a vineyard, and you want to get married. There are rules and regulations all along the way. And there are certain societal advantages that you're not supposed to take of people. And the Chumash is careful to highlight all of these things along the way. So there's really nothing miscellaneous here, when you think about it. It's all about this atmosphere of, of what we want to happen in the war. Right? And to me spoke about the courtroom, the courts, the leadership, and the wars that you're going to have to fight. But then eventually, you come back home from war. And you know when, when all the smoke clears, and then you have a whole new list of things to do. Right now, now you're starting a home so now what and here's where the Chumash tells us about all these different things and the kind of atmosphere that you're supposed to have the spiritual pure holy atmosphere where you're not even taking that mini advantage right where even all the money is equal but maybe this is an exchange that is unholy for whatever reason and maybe you know um, and and maybe there's someone who's weaker than you and we're you know and we're not going to just you know, to, to just stomp down on the weak. But we recognize that Hashem is in charge in our homes. That's the atmosphere that we want to have. So we have an understanding of what Parshas Kisete is about. But what we have yet to sort of completely answer is why the war series continues here. Because right? you might say, like we've been saying, that Parshas Kisete is taking us off of the battlefield, back into the homes, right? You found a captive, and then you risked having a dysfunctional home, but here's the kind of home you want to have. That's all fine. But if this is all about taking us off of the battlefield, why does the Chumash tell us, Ki say la-milchama ale It should not say when you go out to war, it should say when you return from war. Right? You're finding in the captives a woman of beautiful appearance. Why is the Chumash telling us, Ki la-milchama, tell us, Ki um, I guess ki um, yeah, I guess kitashevum or something to that effect. When you return from war, why? When you go out to war, question number one. Question number two. Why, all of a sudden, is a Malik appearing at the very end? We explained why maybe he, he's a great cap to the subject of taking advantage of the weak. But this is Lamisa, This is a war topic. This belongs to the seven Canaanite nations. Wouldn't you say? And maybe the chumash is trying to tell us something very important that, even when we're walking off of the battlefield, the Chumash is not going to dare tell us that we let our guard down, that we're being shoved from the Melchama, that we're going home from the war. Because even as we start to build a home, build a family, all these different things, the Melchamas Hashem still exists. No, it's not a war over conquest of land. But there is an internal, internal war that continues to wage. And that's the war of the Melchem Esayetzar, right? When it comes to Ishesifas Torah, the Chumash tells us, or really Rashi tells us, that Lo El That's what this war is a war about. There is a war when you are building your home. There is a war when you're making decisions about who you're going to marry. There is a war, even after marriage. Right? Hopefully, hopefully, you know that, that that war is 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 done the right way. But you know the the Ezer Kinegedo. There's there's a war to be waged there as well. But there's war at every moment when you're dealing with your peers, when you're dealing with business, when you're dealing with people that are weaker than yourself, when you are, you know, every decision that you make. And this sort of tells us a little bit about the presence of a mulek at the end of our Parsha. Because you might be familiar, but this is really just the raya. You might be familiar with the understanding of a mulek that is um, held by... Um, by the by, Rav Moshe Salavechik, which Rav Yosef Ber Salavechik famously cited in the name of his father, um, that Amalek is not just a physical war. And if he would just be a physical war, we'll, we'll argue that he should have been in Parshas Shoftim with all the other Canaanite nations that need to be destroyed. However, when it comes to the war with Amalek, so, once again, Rav Yosef Ber he famously cited his father, Rav Moshe Salvedic, who thoroughly explained with incredible mastery how different halachus in the Rambam indicate um, that the Rambam differentiated between two different wars and possibly two different forms of a malik. Because the war against the Kanani nations, that was a physical battle against those nations and it's limited specifically to those nations. However, he suggested that when it comes to Melechamas Amalek, there is both a physical or biological nation of Amalek and there's an ideological Amalek. Right? The second form of Amalek, some um, say, and he actually elaborated, that this was personified by the Nazis, Zimach Shemam who embodied pure anti-Semitic evil. But once we assume this model, the war against the Malik, though it certainly overlaps with the war series of Shoftim, it's really altogether a different war. Because it's a war, not just a physical one, but it's a war of ideologies. It's a battle of the soul. And in this vein, the eradication of this evil incarnate is the single goal of the Melchamas Malik. And it's really just an expansion of this perpetual Melchamas Yetzer, the battle of the Yetzir, the evil inclination that's inside us. The same Yetzirah that Yafas To'ar is responding to. And, you know, if, we, if we're going back to what we've said about bookends between the parashios, think about it. The Yafas To'ar, Amalek, they're both the Melchama Sayetzir, the beginning of our parsha, the end of our parsha. Wars that take place even off of the battlefield. What are you going to do when the Yetzirah comes for you? But that's really what we're discussing here. And once again, this Melchama this Sayetzir takes place at home, everywhere. And this lar- this larger ideological battle would explain why Ifas Tor maintains that heading of when you go out to war against your enemies. Because, once again, th- that battle is still in full force. And we, we can understand why we, so- we find so many domestic and societal laws all the way through. Because this Sahara this battle, it permeates our entire existence. It permeates our lives. And so we see that's why also Melchama Sallamalek only surface is at the end of our parsha right here. And this, uh, this is the battle that confronts us at every mitzvah. It's the battle of life. It is the battle of uh, the soul. Now that we understand it, we can get ready to wrap up this, this, this covenant of the future in Parsha's Kisavah, where we learn about what that covenant is supposed to look like when we enter Eretz Yisrael, and when we confront next week yet another tochacha we'll hold that for next week, because that's next week's Parsha. But in the meantime, that takes us through a packed Parsha's Say, Perhaps now you understand it with such a panoramic view, it's different than you've ever understood it before. And hopefully you've gained from that, and hopefully you have what to think about over the Shabbos. But in the meantime, thank you for joining us here at Parsha Panorama, and always thank you for joining us here at the Database.